Welcome to the Diverse Minds Podcast, where we give you the tips, tools, and techniques you need to be a mentally healthy and inclusive leader. Each week, you'll hear about a variety of topics linked to mental health, well-being, and diversity that will enhance both your professional practice and personal well-being. Welcome to the 24th episode of the Diverse Minds Podcast. As we approach Valentine's Day and commercial love being in the air, I've decided that today's podcast is all about exploring people of colour, sex and mental health. And I'm joined by the expert in this area, Dr. Annabelle Showamimo. Dr. Annabelle Showamimo is a community sexual and reproductive health doctor, having completed an MSc in sexual and reproductive health research. At medical school, Annabelle assisted in developing training for medical students on female genital mutilation, FGM, and continues to campaign on a range of reproductive justice issues. She's a contributor for online platforms, including Black Ballad, The Independent, and Galdem.com, writing on a range of health, social justice, and cultural issues. Annabelle is also the founder of Decolonizing Contraception, a community interest company aimed at addressing the unethical history in sexual and reproductive health, particularly experimentation on people of color. Decolonizing contraception is about understanding how culture and history impact these populations and affect how they experience sexual and reproductive health. And I'm delighted to say that Decolonizing Contraception have completed their crowdfunding campaign to create the first sexual health and well-being festival, SexFest, for people of colour in the UK, and it's taking place on the 18th of April 2020. And Annabelle firmly believes that healthcare should be about empowering people with knowledge to make informed choices about their bodies. She spends her spare time campaigning on reproductive justice, NHS cuts, and improving healthcare for marginalized groups. When she's not in scrubs or in clinic, she can be found at a protest with a placard or the theatre. Annabelle, I'm really delighted to welcome you to the show. Hi, thank you, Lena, and thank, thanks for having me. Um, also, that intro makes me sound like I should just you know, I can just relax now because <laughs> that was such a nice introduction. Thank you. No, you're welcome and, and very well deserved. So um, I know Annabelle because we are in the same book group and I'm really, really, you know, it's brilliant that you've come on today. So I've given a little bit of background about decolonizing contraception and I just, you know, and there is some information, of course, as to why it's so important and why it's needed. But what made you decide to start DC and how did you do that? Um, well, as you said in your introduction, um, I started writing um, and being a journalist um, about five years ago now, and I was writing about lots of different things. And um, when I started um, sexual reproductive health training, I started writing about some of the issues and the things that I saw. And one of the things that cropped up is just kind of the long legacy in history um, that people of colour have with um, reproductive health and sexual health um, in terms of it being used um, for things like population control or stigma and taboo and where certain issues have come from and how they've been reinforced. So I wrote an article about it and um, after I wrote that article and it was on Galem, I had lots of different people um, messaging me and also um, talking to me in social settings about it and just saying actually lots of those conversations I would like to have in real life um, with other people like me and uh, just want to see how we can take that further so um then it just spiraled into me talking to colleagues um from similar backgrounds um that work in sexual reproductive health and then that turned into trying to do more events and things and it just really escalated from there 
I think it's really interesting, isn't it? Because often we don't set off on a path to do something, but we follow our passion and we follow what we believe in. And it is amazing how other people think, get behind you and it, and it grows into some into a movement. Absolutely. Um, one thing I will say with decolonizing contraception, it was lots of different ideas um, and combined ideologies um, that I had in my head from various pieces of um, reading that I'd done in different sectors, not just sexual reproductive health, not just medicine, but looking at historical information and looking at social sciences and then um, talking to people about it. And when you have ideas in your head, you never know if when you speak them out loud, people are going to start laughing at you or they're going to embrace it and be like, actually, no, I thought that too. Um, and it's been really nice, actually, because I've had a lot more of, of the latter response. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why um, we keep trying to do more and we keep trying to have different discussions um, because it's like every discussion that we have, whether that's about um, cisgendered women, um, patriarchy and the pill, which was like one of the first kind of talks we did, um, from that discussion, people raised loads of interesting points and then we went on to have more discussions. So yeah, it's just been spiralling and that's been really, really nice. And, you know, as a doctor and campaigner, and you might see them as one thing, you might see them as separately. What do you think have been your key career learning points? Um, So, first of all, I see them as very much joined uh, because of the interest that I have. First of all, I think that healthcare is a basic human right and everybody should have have access to good quality healthcare. Um, So... By definition, that kind of guides my principles and work as a doctor and the issues that I care about and the social justice issues that I care about. However, I'm acutely aware that not every doctor or health professional or people that work in healthcare feel the same way. And then there's also this whole thought that actually as a doctor or somebody providing healthcare that you're supposed to be really objective and not have any kind of political um, views, um, which I find quite ridiculous because I just don't think that's true. That can be true of anybody. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so yeah, I find them find them deeply intertwined. They influence each other um, and the issues and uh, the steps that I take in terms of career-wise, um, definitely. And I found that being in the medical profession especially in the UK it's really interesting because actually a lot of doctors try to take a step back politically or tell themselves that they're apolitical because they think they're not supposed to be so that's been quite an interesting barrier um, to being an advocate activist campaigner. So I guess your key learning points are that actually you have to do what you believe in you have to step forward and use your kind of political stance and medicine go very much hand in hand for you um, and doing what's right and doing things outside the boundary of your role. So yeah I think essentially um, one of the key learning points that very much come from decolonizing contraception is that you ultimately everybody has biases prejudice and um, political stances and it's how far we choose to acknowledge those as a reality um and how they manifest in our work and that's a lot of what I try to discuss with people that you know you may think you don't have these things but you do and we have to challenge and discuss them if we're going to kind of progress um and change um change the area of practice not that I just work in, but anybody works in. I think a lot of the things that we discuss around decolonizing contraception and sex and reproductive health are just applicable to a lot of different, a lot of different areas and a lot of different fields. Um, and yeah, definitely just um, 
if you have an idea, definitely always speak it out loud. Um, and then you never know, you might not just be the lone um, person having those thoughts. Loads of people may agree and join you. You never know where it might go. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think that's very powerful and very true and how you can get genuine allies from doing that. Yeah. Allies is very important. (laughs) Yeah, I know because otherwise we feel like we're in isolation, don't we? Um, Yeah. And I think there is a lot to be said about surrounding yourself with um, not just people that always agree with you. That's something I feel really strongly about. I feel like you have to have people that are willing to challenge you. And I always say that never be threatened by people that are cleverer than you. Surround yourself by people that are cleverer than you. But allyship um, is so, so important. A lot of the things that I do on a day-to-day basis, I do not pretend that they've come into being just because of me. Um, I have like a very solid group of friends, colleagues, uh, you know, senior and junior people that have mentored me. I'm constantly asking people for assistance and help. Um, Yeah, you just have to be really humble. (laughs) Yeah, that's a very powerful learning point as well. So I mentioned the Sex Fest on April the 18th, 2020. So can you tell us more about that, how it's shaping up and really what you would see as the the aims of the day and and actually the outcomes and what you want people to go away with? And, you know, this is obviously very exciting because you crowdfunded for it. It was a big project. Yeah. um, Yeah. So first of all, I think it's really important to understand um, kind of the ideology and where it's come from. So first of all, a lot of people aren't aware within sexual reproductive health, um, they're really huge health inequalities, um, particularly for black, Asian and uh, Latin people, Latin communities um, in in the UK. Um, Now, the reasons for this are variable because obviously each demographic can be broken down further and um, have their different needs. Um, But some of the problems are similar or the same. Um, around not being able to access services, um, not getting the education they need, um, services not being tailored in the right way. So we have really huge gaps, whether that's uptake of cervical screening, vaccination programs, um, sexually transmitted infections, um, poor access for particularly um, queer communities. So there's a lot of lot of issues around sexual reproductive health issues in the UK, and the gaps are really really massive. So. Some of these these health inequalities have actually not improved for a ve- at all <laughs> for over a decade, and some of them are actually getting worse. Yeah. So I just looked at the scene around me, and I know the, the discussions that I'm having within um, certain communities and my own community that don't seem to be reaching the people that you know design services or really have the power. And I just thought. I get to be in rooms that some people don't get to be in um, and it's just time to do things differently because actually people do want to have these conversations. They just want to have them in very specific ways and often the funding isn't there um, for these projects or these services because they don't fit a conventional model. So that's what the Sex Fest is about. So it's about coming together together We're going to have a festival, so essentially different types of workshops throughout the day, catering to a range of different communities. There'll be sexual health screening. Um, Afterwards, there'll be kind of like a party with poetry and music, still along the lines of sexual reproductive health. But it's taking away, I guess, some of the the stigma and the isolation that a lot of people feel when they have to go and access a sexual health clinic. And um, also people not knowing 
where to go. It's supposed to be a bit more of a relaxed thing. So yeah, I'm really hoping that it will be a really great day and also it will give people opportunities to network so they can go away and do things and collaborate and learn about other charities or organisations that exist. Yeah, because often you don't you don't know what you don't know, do you? And you think I've got to put up with this, I've got to suffer with this, or I've you know this is embarrassing, all sorts of things. So I think that's going to be yeah crucial for people. And I know you're also uh, you've opened up the opportunity for people to run workshops. And I couldn't remember when the deadline was for applications. So the the deadline will be um, the end of the month, um, but I didn't really set a firm deadline because. Um, We've had lots of interest. I'm still going to speak to lots of different people. So I keep getting more and more suggestions from people and I want to give people maximum opportunity to apply. But it's going to probably be solidly the end of January um, and we'll keep volunteer opportunities open a bit longer um, so people can fill out on our website. Um, People can also fill out applications to volunteer and also have stalls. Um, so for any charities or other groups that are quite like-minded um, there'll be an area for stores so people can browse even buy things like that are kind of related to the field um, and have conversations and things like that so there's a lot of opportunities to get involved um, it's going to be um, in Camden at two venues in Camden near Camden Market um, there's an information pack again on our website which gives you a bit more information about that um, so yeah I just really want um, as many people and lots of people have already and it's been really really um, heartwarming that like everybody seems to be engaging with it um, yes yeah, so I just want people to get involved as much as possible really and build connections and um, people to find their people through this festival yeah I think I'm, re- I'm very much looking forward to attending thank you so in your eyes what have you seen in relation to in terms of the challenges of people of colour in the UK, sex and mental health. So what might the challenges be for people with sexual health? How does it then impact on their mental health? And of course, being um, people of colour, how does that add an additional layer? I mean, the area is just massive, um, first of all. I'd say that it's something that we're only just scratching the surface on and there's really poor research around it and how they correlate. I think what is abundantly clear is that the huge health inequalities that you see in mental health and access to services are directly mirrored in sexual health um, um, in the UK which is really interesting um, that there's similar outcomes for both populations so I think there's probably they're actually quite deeply correlated um, so one of the biggest things and there was a study recently done um, in terms of um, the prime study with UCL which is about HIV and the menopause but as HIV becomes a chronic condition, obviously um, women living with men, um, living with HIV are living longer. And there was a clear disparity there between the, um, the women living with HIV, black um, African women and their white counterparts in terms of the mental health issues that they were facing and um, living with this chronic disease. So whether that's the stigma or discrimination they face um, internally with their communities or from outsiders, um, is unclear, um, but there is real proof coming through that um, these things are, are kind of intrinsically linked. Um, another thing that um, decolonizing contraception is quite passionate about is culturally sensitive sex education. So obviously, this is this is very specific to each commute each community, but um, definitely amongst the 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 background I'm from. Um, 
So I am British Nigerian and you know, talking about sex and things like that, when you're younger is really taboo, it's not done, people don't get the education. And then it's kind of expected that in your early 20s, you're going to get married, and you're going to have kids, and you're going to understand all of those things. But there's not really a clear in between about how you get there. And these things can lead to people either having to suppress their sexuality, um, not understanding things like when they're actually being taken advantage of and abuse. Um, so there's a lot of linkage around, you know, um, people not being sexually open or not having that opportunity or really understanding their identities and um, having poor mental health outcomes. Um, but how they link, um, again, you know, we've not got great evidence on, so there's a lot of just hypothesizing about how these things work. But one thing I would say is that I'm not sure if you've read the book Queenie. Yes, yeah. Yeah, okay, so I always always bring it up by um, Candy Carty-Williams. I really like it, and I spoke about it lots last year because um, the protagonist is um, uh, a black Caribbean woman, and she essentially goes through a lot of difficulty in terms of like her mental health and it really manifests in like um in poor sexual health choices and she struggles and and it shows how those two link quite clearly um and it brings up loads of discussions about trying to have conversations with some of your seniors around those issues particularly around mental health they're not really believing that poor mental health is a thing um <clears throat> not being being able to be sexually open so how we start to address these things um one of my big things is about talking and language um and this is something that always crops up time and time again um a lot of people just haven't been given the space to sit in rooms with people that look like them have experienced similar things to they have and talk about what those experiences meant what it meant not to be able to talk about those things how they can talk about them for their own children and how we can like do better or be better. Um, and I think that's one of the, the, the ways that we can kind of try to improve sexual and mental health. I really hear you on the culture of silence. Obviously, it's different in South Asian communities. And again, within that, I'm just, I'm not going to generalize. I'm going to talk about my experience. But, um, and for some of my friends, there has, you know, have experienced a massive culture of silence and how it is really taboo. And when you were saying that, I could, I could definitely, um, I could definitely relate to that because that's very much, or if anything came on TV, kissing or anything, the channel was changed. Um, so you're, you're left with this sense of shame as well, I think, around the subject. And I'm not criticising, it is what it is. And I think there's a lot of cultural decorum around it. But yeah, until we break that culture of silence, we're not going to be able to move forward. Um, and know, I think the really important thing is that uh, around that, people always kind of ask or question why you know we organize as like people of color um and you know they're like why are you kind of like lumping all people of color together when they have different cultural experiences and what i say is that really people of color organizing has kind of been forced um on a lot of people because the status quo and what is considered normal is usually whiteness and you know white supremacy as an ideology so in terms of um, diaspora communities, people often, you know, having to fit around that ideal or try to understand their own identity um, 
in comparison to that. And that's not just on, you know, a national level. That is really kind of become, because of colonialism and things like that, that's become the international status quo, you know, that people measure themselves against, um, educational systems kind of use often, even, you know, when you go to Global South, very westernized systems. So it's really about trying to talk about otherness and how when we do things like sexual health and reproductive health, how for some other people, there are so many other facets of their identity that feed in to how they experience health and not just sexual health, which are often very much overlooked. You know, people take, just say, oh, that person is, I don't know, black British. So, you know, that service or the way that they're going to experience that system is going to be exactly the same as their white counterpart. And actually it's just so much more complicated um, that, than that for a lot of us yeah and I was talking about this as well on the body positive episode with Sarah Daisy Bernard and we were talking about how the body positive movement it's great but it does need to be more inclusive so similarly obviously with health services and you know there's not one type of black British either so again how different black British communities are going to experience those services differently as well yeah no absolutely and this is something that you know I talk about and I've been advocating for so much more is that you know although we organize as this collective to discuss about similar issues that affect us and overarching loads of overarching problems you know we have people from all different demographics under that you know POC umbrella and fundamentally even within black communities when we break down like sexual reproductive health inequalities we see huge, huge differences about what our problems are and some of the issues actually that have been allowed to manifest for so long have in part been caused by the fact that statistics have been lumping people together like under a BAME umbrella or whatever. So we can't actually see what the problems are for each different group. So these are some of the discussions that we, we're having and we're trying to, you know, knuckle down and say, actually, we really need better, robust research that looks at individual communities and barriers that are shared and how they can be tackled um, in a more comprehensive way. Yeah, I know. And um, there was a recent thing actually about the University of Oxford. I don't know if you saw it. I think you did see it. It was on Twitter, wasn't it? About um, saying BME does not mean that you've got more black students. Uh, So yes, classic example. And again, how that's peddled. And if you don't dig deeper into what that actually means, it's it's very easy to uh, miss that there's that there are big gaps. Yeah, absolutely. And it's something like I'm really passionate about talking about that. I actually really don't like the term BAME, but it's like, a a well understood research policy term so sometimes you know I have to use it because there's not enough um, space in certain papers or whatever to unpack different terminology and it's the term that is status quo but within that I have to keep challenging and speaking about using it because it masks a lot of health inequalities and gaps you know people say they appointed a BAME candidate you know or that, you know, X amount of people from BME um, jobs are in, you know, senior positions. But then when you break that down to what that actually means, you know, 
often there is disproportionate number of group um, groups represented and then there's like none of anybody else. So actually no headway has been made um, for, for some demographics, you know, within that system. And um, I think sometimes it's actually deliberate um, because then people don't need to account for the fact that progress has not been made. So I do think there's a lot to be said about terminology, using the right terminology at the right time in re relation to the issue that you're trying to address. A lot of the time people want to just use one term or use an individual term. Um, and I often have to say, you know, actually, <laughs> Some days it's people of colour, but sometimes you're actually talking about black Caribbean, black people, South Asian people or Indian people. You have to call you have to call it what it is and address the problem with the right language at the right time. Yeah, I absolutely hear that. And then if we think about if I could get you to just maybe think about workplaces, um, not necessarily medical workplaces, but workplaces in general, what would be your top three tips? Because one of my most popular episodes was about black mental health. But I'd love to hear from you about what your top three tips for creating an inclusive space for mental health and wellness in the workplace for people of colour would be. Ooh, big question. <laughs> I was going to say, yeah, easy to solve. I mean. I always talk about, again, about like diversity versus like de decolonizing, diversifying versus decolonizing, because a lot of people try to like conflate the, the two yeah. um, and talk about the two. But I think in terms of mental well-being for people of color in a workplace is often intrinsically linked to a lack of diversity um, or, or linked to a lack of kind of understanding which kind of often goes side by side so first of all if your if your workplace is diverse and more inclusive then obviously people are going to feel more comfortable about being there and not feel isolated and othered however that doesn't go necessarily without saying because it can also have other toxic atmospheres um but i do think that definitely that definitely helps um i think Definitely talking is key, um, depending on what jobs people are in. People can be at a desk or live very, we, people can live very isolating lives now. And we know that loneliness is like an epidemic. Um, and I think creating more social spaces or ways for people kind of to debrief or talk to people or do something like fun throughout the day. I know that some workplaces are more edgy than others, you know, having like football tables and ping pong tables and bean bags and that kind of thing. But these things genuinely help, you know, allow people to move around the space. They're not like locked in to um, their desk all day. And to be honest, this can be implemented everywhere. Obviously I work in the health sector and people can be like, oh, it's not conducive to have those kind of things. But at the same time, our clinic, um, you know, kitchen is really communal. So even if people just have some space to go make tea and know they can take a five minute break there and all sit around and have a chat throughout the day, that really, really um, considerably break thing, breaks things up. And then I think lastly, it's just like having, um, these all sound probably quite cliche, but like having a holistic approach. I mean, I've, you know, spent quite a lot, number of my years at university and going through different educational institutions. And I think what is remarkable is that I went to really big health, um, a big educational institutions. I had a lot of people in my year group and I really felt like a number the whole time that I went through educational systems until like 
pretty much my masters where I sat down and you know there was a good pastoral care team and they asked me just like generally how life was um and that checking in and holistic approach and people understanding that you have multiple things going on at your in your life at any one time most people do you know some people don't which is also fine to just you know have one or two things but a lot of people you know there's family they're they're trying to study for something or you know do some kind of self-improvement or they have hobbies or whatever that understanding of, of your employee or colleague as a literally a, a multi-faceted person that has other things going on in their life is so key because there's been times where people say a cruel or unkind word to somebody and they don't realize that actually they've got some really bad news today or that person's miscarrying or they miscarried a week ago or something you know people make a lot of assumptions when they have literally no idea so I think holistic approach to employees and trying to ascertain what else that person has going on in their life is great that, no, thank you, Annabelle. You said it, it, some of it was cliched, but I don't think it is at all, actually. I think you've you've given really helpful suggestions because often I think some people can feel very uncomfortable and think, well, it's okay, we're all the same. Um, and I also think it's about acknowledging people aren't the same as in, you know, they will need slightly different treatment or they'll need to be spoken to, you know, they're just dif- there's difference. You want to be equal and fair to people, but that doesn't mean you treat everyone the same. And just on that point, sorry, just to add kind of my last point about being multifaceted and having other things going on in their lives, especially for people of colour. Now, it's something that's difficult for some people to realise that don't have, you know, other aspects to their identity or face kind of more discrimination or prejudice. But something bad going on in the world, for example, that disproportionately affects, I don't know, like black men, for example. So if a case hits the news about another unarmed black man being killed or something that can affect your black employees like in a way that you if you're not a black person can't necessarily understand or fathom you know it makes them feel like this world is like against them or really negative and I think that's actually a really important thing to understand and not just in relation to people of color but whether that be a um, a sexuality thing negative news stories or bad things happening in the world that disproportionately target certain demographics can actually really bring somebody's mental health down yeah yeah, so I think that's not acknowledged enough um and I don't think people give people room to actually have that conversation no I think again it's one of those things that can feel very uncomfortable for people or people think well that's happening over there it's not happening to you not realizing the impact that that those global events or local events or national events will have on someone yeah we live in a very global world and I think people don't you know social media news stories like something happening um you know flooding or like the bushfires happening in Australia for some people that is going to have a big impact whether because it's their families there whether it's because you know that issue is particularly close to their heart you know some people do feel certain things slightly more deeply and I just think you know, we should be given room to have those discussions and that should be, it all should just be okay for big news stories or, you know, these big global issues to truly affect somebody. I don't think that makes somebody soft or like unable to cope. It's just the reality of the world we live in now. We can't ignore certain things because of the way media and news breaks. Yeah. 
yeah I know it's so true and um, we don't live in silos in a way do we because of this exposure to all this information and news yeah we're constantly plugged in it's really difficult thing to um, <laughs> to kind of deprogram yourself but yeah it's a reality and so as well as a sex fest for 2020 what are your hopes aims ambitions as a doctor and also for decolonizing contraception for 2020 I think firstly I'd just say I'm really just enjoying being given multiple platforms and space to talk about these really vital issues that as I say transcend not just sexual health but into all um, across the healthcare sector. So wherever the decolonizing contraceptive wave takes me I'm happy Um, but in terms of planning Um, I really, you know, increasingly I'm going into universities um, to have these conversations um, uh, with students and see how they relate some of the issues that we discuss um, to their own areas of practice. These are conversations that were very much missing for me at university and I had to kind of self-educate and um, read around on my own and see how they impacted on my own clinical practice. So it's really nice um, to start building some of these ideas into into curriculums now and seeing and seeing that change and how that transpires so that's something that I really hope could go further I think that um, you know we're linking up with more researchers and trying to explain to them how they can be more innovative and build trust in communities um, that have typically not engaged with um, health research and how we can do that in a better way so I really hope that over the next few years people are going to actually start generating research for certain demographics that's much needed um, because they can get that data because people want to take part in trials they're not scared of healthcare professionals um, taking advantage of them or using that information and breaking down some of those barriers so that's something I'm really excited about. Um, In terms of sex fest um, I think that I'm really excited for that to be like a fun way for people to discuss their sexual reproductive health. Often it's so weighty within our communities um, and it's, you know, there's so much stuff there to unpack, um, whether it's sexual health stuff, whether it's physical well-being, or whether it's just knowing where that information is. So I'm super excited just for that to be a fun day and to give lots of different people space to one run workshops and talk about the stuff that they want to talk about. Um, and I hope that if it's successful, then it is something that can continue and we can keep doing like other workshops whether that be on like pleasure and well-being whether that be on smears like just you know and finally my hope is and I always say this we call it decolonizing contraception but we talk about all of sexual reproductive health um and one of the reasons I did that is because I was really keen to emphasize about contraception um discussions and sexual health discussions also being um relating to uh, cisgendered men so you know and heterosexual men who often don't engage with these discussions at all um, so I'm so excited to get more um, heterosexual men of colour on board um, to have these conversations and taking part in sex fests and things like that um, because some of their health outcomes are just really bad and um, just because of stigma and masculinity people don't want to talk about the, the problems that they face in this area. Yeah, and that, yeah, that's really helpful. I think it's interesting the point you made about cisgendered heterosexual men as well. So, yeah, trying to get people to as many people as possible to different types of people to engage with the agenda. 
yeah, just um, yeah, just taking the message as as wide and as far as possible from the public to academic institutions, and yeah, breaking down some of those barriers between those groups. So if people want to know more about your work, and I've included some of the links um, in the show notes, so the website, the Twitter, your Twitter and Instagram, but is there anything specific you want to tell people about if they want to know more about your work or get involved in decolonizing contraception and, of course, the sex fest? Yeah, so I think I've kind of mentioned a few things as I've gone along, but um, if you go to www.decolonizingcontraception.com, then you can find more information about the sex fest, taking part, volunteering, sponsors, stalls, all of that kind of stuff. Um, if you have any other questions, then you can email us and there's a contact form on the website. In terms of myself, um, you can follow me on Twitter at Mimo, and you can also follow Decolonizing Contraception on Twitter and Instagram. And again, you can um, find the links to those on our on our website um, but with decolonizing contraception um, we're kind of constantly developing new um, events or ideas um, based on conversations we've had at other events and in other spaces as a collective of individuals um, we're not funded as I said sex fest was um, a crowdfunder campaign um, we are literally funded by um, different collaborations and consultancy we do with like different organizations at the moment so everything is really quite organic in terms of what what happens next we're just really committed to making sure that we're bettering um health um sexual health and proving health inequalities um for people of color and responding to the conversations that people are having even if that's just creating uh uh, space and destigmatizing the issue so yeah that's um that's us oh thank you so much annabelle it's been a joy to have you on the show and i hope every, people who are listening um don't forget the show notes we've got all the links please do get involved and we hope to see you at the sex fest in april and thank you so much and we will check in with you in the next episode thanks for listening to the diverse minds podcast Don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you access your podcasts from. You can also connect with me on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Tune into next week's episode of the podcast, where I'll bring you more insights on mental health and inclusion. Bye for now.